Hello, and welcome to the History of the Cops, episode 14, The Return. So last week, we ended with San Asinasius leaving Alexandria to avoid arrest and possibly execution, and going to Rome to stay with his colleague Pope Julius in the summer of 339 AD. The transition of power in Alexandria from Asinasius to Gregory was rough, and violence had to be used repeatedly to make the Egyptians fall in line. As Sanasinasius was popular in Egypt, and Gregory was seen as a heretical foreigner imposed on the Egyptian by the imperial government. And as far as we can tell, Gregory did not really try to win the hearts and minds of the Egyptians by softening the theological dialogue or trying to win over the other bishops of Egypt. In a matter of fact, he ordered that an elderly bishop, who happened to be a confessor from the Great Persecution, be scourged, and the bishop died a few days afterward from his wounds. Sanasanasius also complained in one of his letters and how Gregory prevented the proper burial of his aunt in a Christian manner, and proper burial was always a big deal for the Egyptians. All in all, Gregory was despised and seen as an illegitimate replacement for Sanasanasius, and could only maintain his hold on power using violence. Sanasanasius, on the other hand, was welcomed by Pope Julius of Rome, which was in the territory of the Emperor Constans, who was either indifferent or even sympathetic to Sanasanasius. As a result, Sanasanasius was free to send letters pleading his case and giving his version of the events to the wider empire. Now, Rome at this point was more or less a political backwater. The empire was divided in three among the three sons of Constantine. Constantine II was based in Trier, Germany, Constance was based in Dacia, and Constantius was based in Constantinople. But since he was fighting the Persians on and off, he spent a lot of time in Syria, closer to the action. As far as theology was concerned, Constantius was decidedly Arian, with Eusebius of Nicomedia in his court. The other two brothers were more or less sympathetic to orthodoxy. So, if the Bishop of Rome was to call an empire-wide council to resolve the outstanding issue of San Asinasius, that would greatly enhance his influence, which had been slipping, and checks the growing bar of Eusebius of Nicomedia. Thus, as soon as San Asinasius arrived in Rome, Pope Julius sends out an invite for a universal council in Rome, and sends a couple of priests specifically to Eusebius to invite him personally. Politically, around the same time, Constantine II and Constance have a falling out. Constance have reached legal adulthood and was becoming more assertive in ruling his territory, and the two brothers were in dispute about who did North Africa belong to. As a result, Constantine II decided to invade Italy and eliminate his younger brother Constance if possible. But remember when I said a few episodes ago that Italy is a tough place to conquer? Well... Constantine II was no Constantine I. He failed in his adventure and died, leaving his territory to his younger brother Constance in 340 AD. Thus, the empire was divided again into the symbol Old East and West. The West ruled by Constance and the East by Constantius. The death of Constantine II was bad news for San Asinasius and the Orthodox cause. San Asinasius and Constantine had developed a cordial relationship during the first exile in Trier, and Constantine became a strong advocate for St. Athanasius's cause. So in the struggle between Constant and Constantine II, 
St. Athanasius was seen in the camp of Constantine. Even so, he went to great lengths to stay out of politics in Europe, and in his words, I entrusted my cause to the church and devoted myself to the worship of God. As a result, Constance ignored the case of St. Athanasius for a while, and their communication was limited. Nonetheless, notable citizens in Rome were intrigued by St. Athanasius, and again, a grassroots movement supporting him flourished. Some historians speculate that during his exile in Rome, St. Athanasius spread the concepts of monasticism that was flourishing in Egypt at the time, putting in the seeds for a movement that would shape Europe once the Roman Empire falls. And that wasn't the only thing that came out of St. Athanasius' exile in Rome either. In there, he began to write his Oration Against the Arians, a masterful theological work that clearly set him apart as the leading Orthodox voice. As a minor side note, in Rome, St. Athanasius brought two monks with him. One of them was named Ammonius, and he came to be known as the eldest of the Toll Brothers. Now, the Toll Brothers will play a future role in our story, so keep him in mind for future episodes. Anyway, the priest sent by Pope Julius to invite Eusebius to the Bland Church Council in Rome eventually arrived to Antioch, where they were kept waiting with no answer until January 341 AD. Then, during the dedication of a great church in Antioch, where 97 local bishops were assembled for the occasion, Eusebius took the opportunity to declare a council where St. Athanasius was condemned again. And not only did Eusebius and the bishops assembled in Antioch condemn St. Athanasius, they accused Pope Julius of misconduct and requested that he either withdraw from communion from St. Athanasius, or he himself would lose recognition from the Eastern bishops. And that was the answer to Pope Julius' invite to the Council of Rome. Pope Julius responded by having the bland Council of Rome anyway, without any of the Eastern bishops, where St. Athanasius was cleared from all wrongdoing, and he chastised the Eastern bishops and Eusebius for replacing St. Athanasius and many other Orthodox bishops illegally. Eusebius never saw the letter, as he died in the summer of 341 AD, after a pretty impressive career in politics. Eusebius was incredibly successful politically. Not only he survived a great persecution, he ended up in Licinius' court after it, and when Licinius was defeated, he ended up in Constantine's court, and became a major influence on Constantine's religious policy, and his son after him. He conveniently was able to transfer as a bishop from Beirut to the more important Nicomedia and finally to the new capital, Constantinople. Even so, technically, bishops were not allowed to transfer. Before his death, he was responsible for the removal of the Bishop of Antioch, the Bishop of Alexandria, and the Bishop of Constantinople, an impressive trio, as those were the major religious and cultural centers of the empire. But perhaps his greatest achievement is the ordaining of a man known as Little Wolf, as a bishop, to preach Aryan Christianity to the Gothic barbarian beyond the empire borders. Little Wolf was successful, and the Gothic people will be Aryans for hundreds of years to come. For a while, even Rome itself will be under Aryan control. But this is another story for a different day. For now, his death was a huge blow for the Aryan cause. There will be no longer strategic, patient, long-term thinking. Now, Constantian would be leading the cause, and he is much more comfortable with the sword than the pen. After Eusebius' death, the seat of Constantinople was now open, and Paul, 
the exiled Orthodox Bishop of Constantinople, from last episode, came back to his seat without waiting for Constantius's permission. The Arians who were in the city did not accept Paul as their bishop, and elected a different man. Constantius, who was staying in Antioch at this point, naturally opposed Paul, and he ordered a military official to arrest him and exile him to outside of the city. But when the official tried to remove Paul, a riot broke out, and the house that he was staying in burnt with him inside. Constantius then traveled personally to Constantinople, punished the city by cutting in half the amount of free grain they received, and removed Paul and appointed an Arian bishop. Here, we see the contrast between Constantius and Eusebius. Eusebius would have convened a council, found Paul guilty of something, and promptly removed him, and I grant, with a little bit of legitimacy. But to show up and remove him by force, because he didn't like him, and then punish the whole city by cutting their grain, is certainly quicker, but it doesn't win many hearts or minds. Anyway, Paul then went directly to Constance's court to complain, and Constance, sensing a political opportunity to exploit, picked up his cause and invited San Asinesius and many of the other exiled bishops to interview them. After meeting them, Constance requested from his brother that an East and a West council meets to decide on their case, and he agreed. The council was decided to take place in Sardica, in between the two domains, and it took about 18 months to get it going. But again, we see that the absence of Eusebius made on the Arian cause. First, the Orthodox bishops still slightly outnumbered the Arian ones, especially if the exiled ones were to be counted, so assembling an empire-wide council is likely to favor the Orthodox. The second, the Orthodox coalition was much more a solid block in their makeup and leadership than the Arian coalition, which had no solid theological leadership once Eusebius died, and its bishops were prone to defection for personal interest. Nonetheless, Constantius had casted the die when he agreed to the council, and thus an arrangement had to be made. San Athanasius, Bol, and the elderly bishop of Cordova, Oseus, who led the Council of Nicaea, made the trip together to the council location, discussing and formulating a unified position. While the eastern bishops assembled in Constantius's territory before the council, they agreed on a strategy, where they were led by a civilian, the prefect of Egypt, the same one that exiled San Athanasius. The proposed strategy was to insist that the exiled bishops are not to be allowed in the council, as they do not consider them to be bishops. Thus, if the western bishops agreed, the slight numerical advantage disappears, and the exiled bishops are guilty, and their innocence now have to be proven. A very advantageous starting position. But if they refuse the demand, then the eastern bishops would refuse to attend, and the council would lose its legitimacy as an empire-wide council, and the eastern bishops can go home, avoiding being a part of a losing battle. The strategy worked. The western bishops naturally refused the demand that St. Athanasius and Paul, not to sit in the council, and despite Oseus's effort to find a compromised solution, the eastern bishops insisted on their demands. The two parties at Sardica never met together as a single council. Many days have passed, and the back-and-forth diplomatic efforts were failing, until the political situation changed. A letter arrived from Constantius announcing victory over the Persians, and with Constantius's free from the war constraints, the eastern bishops felt more comfortably 
that Constantius would back the Aryan cause more assertively and by military force if necessary against the claims of his younger brother. Thus, they left immediately, but before they left, they sent a letter excommunicating their opponents to the rest of the Aryan bishops of the empire, as to imply that this was the result of the council. The western bishops then met and denounced the eastern bishops, proclaiming the innocence of St. Athanasius, Paul, and the rest of the exiled bishops, and sent their decision to the rest of the empire, asking for the bishops to sign if they agree. As a result, they got more than 300 bishops supporting their position. As a minor side note, the Council of Sardica also passed several controversial canons, but theologians debate their universal applicability to this day. One of them was that bishops should no longer appeal to the emperor, but either resolve their dispute within their province or appeal to the bishop of Rome. On one side, some take that canon as moral authority for the bishop of Rome, on the other hand, some consider it to be related to the local circumstances and the issues that the council dealt with. Surely, was the Orthodox Bishop of Alexandria, Constantinople, and Antioch all exiled and replaced by Aryan bishops, there was no leading Orthodox bishop to go to but Rome's. Anyway, these kind of things tend to lead to a big rabbit hole that have no end. But as far as I can tell, the Coptic Church position is the council canons were only applicable to the situation at the time. But to go back to our story, I hope you are getting the point that it was pretty clear that the theological stalemate would only be resolved by the direct action of the emperors, as repeated attempts to solve the issues in the church have been failing. As a result of those feelings, the two emperors started to be more involved, and a high-stakes game of chicken started. For his part, Constantius's orders was that Sanasius is to be beheaded if he ventures into Alexandria and exiles even more clergy from Alexandria. And Constance, by 345 AD, did not mince words in his communication with his brother. To quote one of his letters, Athanasius and Baal are here with me. From questioning them, I have discovered that they are being persecuted for the sake of piety. Accordingly, if you undertake to restore them to their thrones, expelling those who are vainly clinging to them, I shall send them in to you. But if you were to refuse to take this action, be assured that I will come in person and restore them to the thrones which are theirs, even against your will. Constantius folded first. But to his credit, Gregory, the replacement bishop of Alexandria, have died shortly after the letter. And if the Alexandrians were given the expected election, they would have elected San Athanasius anyway. Thus, he could accommodate his brother's demands and save face in the same time. So finally, after close to six years of exile, St. Athanasius was allowed to return to Alexandria. At first glance, one would think that he owes his return to Constance's alone. But while Constance's threat of war stilled the issue, the monastic support in Egypt exerted constant pressure on the civil authorities, and the theological legitimacy obtained by the support of a coalition of bishops outside of Egypt played their part as well. Anyway, then Athanasius did not return right away, as there were questions about Constantius' intention once he gets there. After a year of communication between the emperors and assurances of St. Athanasius' safety, he returned to Alexandria on October 21st, 346 AD, where the crowd gathered a hundred miles outside the city and escorted him in all manners of honor and glory. 
during his exile, St. Athanasius was in constant contact with the Church of Egypt, and his exile casted him in the image of a bishop who was persecuted for righteousness' sake, and his influence and popularity only grew. Gregory's reliance on imperial force and lack of monastic support also assured that the Aryan theology in Egypt would find no lasting home, and Egypt's Christians would overwhelmingly be on the side of St. Athanasius. During his exile, Bishop Srabayon of Tumis was doing an excellent job leading the Orthodox bishop, loyal St. Athanasius, and slowly the Miletian bishops in Egypt were disappearing in favor of Orthodox ones. By the time of the Council of Serdica, only five Miletian bishops were present, and one of them is the infamous Ascarius of Mariutis from last episode, who by now was a bishop. The degree by which St. Athanasius was able to cultivate the loyalty of the Egyptians during his exile was impressive. For example, for the first time in the Coptic Church history, he called for a 40-day fast before Easter in one of his festal letters during the exile, which was duly approved and practiced by all the bishops of Egypt, and stuck even to this day, where the Copts continue to fast before Easter, but the days have increased to 55 days, for reason we will get to when we get to the 6th century. By the time he returned in 347 AD, he ordained 16 new bishops, and managed to get a handful of the remaining Miletians to his side, thus ending the significance of the Miletian schism. A few clergy and monks stayed around for a while longer, but nothing that was significant. Now we can speak of a truly united Egyptian church, representing the whole of Egypt and Libya, with significant influence on the Christians of Ethiopia as well. The theological school of Alexandria also flourished after the appointment of Didymus the Blind by St. Athanasius. Didymus was a remarkable man that lost his sight when he was about four, and as a consequence, his formal education was somewhat neglected. Nonetheless, his intellect and passion for knowledge was his teacher's. He had the letters of the alphabet engraved on wooden tablets and taught himself how to read by feeling them. And once the basics of reading was established, he became a great scholar and eventually the dean of the school of Alexandria. Rufinus and Jerome, influential Western Christian theologians in their time, were his students. He was a devout Oregon defender, writing several books explaining and defending Oregon's view. Anyway, from 347 AD, when St. Athanasius returned to Alexandria, to 350 AD, when the tide turned against him again, things were more or less peaceful in Egypt. Also, the same cannot be said for the wider empire. Next week, we will continue to follow up the story of St. Athanasius and his 50 plus years of struggles. Constance would be killed, and the brief period of peace will end. After all, it's not like Constantius and St. Athanasius were on great terms. Remember, it took a threat of war and the death of his replacement to make his return possible. Was that sought to ponder? Farewell, and until next week. Mm-hmm.